Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into a uranium exploration company that's got operations in Africa. We're going to be speaking about their projects in some detail, as well as looking at the wider market. So we have with us this morning, very kindly, Daniel Major, who's the CEO of GovX. Daniel, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to it. So, Daniel, as I said, we're going to be delving into your projects. You've got a number of different assets in Africa at different stages. Some of them are far progressed, and we're going to be looking at the next steps for them. But we're also going to be looking at the wider uranium market and where GovX fits in and what makes some of your projects unique when we're looking at the wider industry. So, Daniel, let's start. I think let's start from the top. We're going to start, we're going to look at the market, we're going to look at GovEx, and then we're going to look at your individual projects. So to set the scene, Daniel, if you may, for listeners that are looking at the uranium market, I think they'll be interested to hear your perspective about where we are when we're looking at the uranium price, where we are when we're looking at the macro pictures and the key influences that you see on the uranium market at the moment. Yeah, thanks. I agree with you. It's a really good place to start. Um, the uranium market is obviously dri- like all commodities has a key driver. Uh, the key driver for the uranium industry is nuclear energy. Almost all uranium that is mined from the ground um, and consumed is consumed by nuclear reactors around the world. And so therefore, you know, the drive for clean energy is what is getting us in the uranium industry most excited. Um, obviously, it's an industry that's had a tough time for a period post Fukushima in 2011. Uh, you know that put a bear, put the industry into a bear market as people got concerned about the safety on nuclear reactors. The fact that the reactor was hit by an exceedingly large wave and no one was injured or hurt by that reactor, but it put a question mark out there, and safety systems were reviewed and checked. But I think what we have seen in the last 24 months is a substantive change by both the public and the politicians to appreciate that nuclear energy has got to become part of clean energy going forward, but also energy security. And the two are very interrelated um, from there. So nuclear energy produces 24-7 zero carbon emissions or almost zero carbon emission energy. Uh, It provides that base load power. So when the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing, you're still getting carbon free electricity coming out. Um, It has become very clear as well um, from a security point of view. uh, You're not being caught by where you get your gas from. Um, that is a factor, obviously, that's become more obvious uh, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and you've seen a lot of companies reshuffling their energy books to try and get around that problem. Um, it is very competitive. Uh, these are long life projects um, as well for nuclear reactors will last up to 80 years now. 
um, once you've built them. So yes, they are high capital at the front, but you're spreading that capital over a very long period of time. We have seen a substantive change um, in a number of areas of this industry. We've had a long growth period coming out of developing Asia, with particularly China. Um, China's going from about 57 gigawatts of nuclear energy currently out to about 70 gigawatts by the end of 2025. Uh, and by the end of 2040, you're at 170 gigawatts uh, and looking to expand beyond that. You have reactor builds um, in other parts of Saudi Arabia, UAE, etc. Japan, where it was most impacted by Fukushima, turned off all 56 of its reactors within a year. We saw the latest consensus turn around on gov- uh, political sentiment now. 51% of people... Uh, have voted to bring back their reactors. Uh, They won't bring them all back. Some of them were old um, and as a result have been um, turned off completely uh, and will be dismantled. Uh, But we expect about 20% of their energy now to come from nuclear. Um, That will put us somewhere between 20 and 30 of their reactors to restart. They've currently got nine. You've seen the US, um, which has the largest reactor fleet in the world, turn very pro-nuclear energy on energy supply risks, etc., and a commitment to clean energy. The U.S. government has currently got a package of $6.4 billion out there to support nuclear energy, uh, very much aggressively pushing small modular reactors. These are reactors that go from 10 megawatts to 300 megawatts in comparison to a big reactor, which is 1,300 uh, 1, megawatts. Um, even here in the UK, we've obviously got a Hinkley Point currently under construction. We're going for Sizewell C as the next one. And the current government uh, is supporting small modular reactor development. And we're seeing that into Europe. And even most recently, um, we saw the EU include nuclear energy and its taxonomy on clean energy. Uh, Small modular reactors are also going to be very key uh, going forward. They're not part of any demand side Uh, but they are becoming very much clear of how you can remove a coal-fired power station and put in a little reactor in its place. And these are non-pressurized vessels. They're designed to be even safer than the current reactors, which are incredibly safe anyway. On the other side of this, obviously, we have the supply side. um, And that, for years, has had no real investment for new production. Um, And now we're sitting with about 190 million pounds of uranium consumed annually. About 130 million pounds is being mined from the ground. We had secondary material was available to fill the gap, but that secondary material is being drawn down very quickly as costs have been um, cut. Operators to reduce their operating costs, they've consumed what they've already got. And on top of that, Uh, You have a couple of uranium funds out there, Yellow Cake in the UK, the Sprott Uranium Trust in North America, which have been buying uranium out of the market and then storing it up as well. So we're going to expect to see a much higher uranium price going forward, given the demand, uh, given the lack of supply, and you need a higher price to incentivize new production. And that's where Goviex really fits into this. We're a, a development company with projects in Africa, which are permitted and ready for development.
Daniel, before we go on and discuss your projects in more detail, I just want to talk to the supply and demand dynamics of the uranium market in more detail. You mentioned there that we currently have a demand of £190 million per year versus a supply of just £130 million. Of course, that leaves a deficit of £60 million. How do you see that playing out going forward? From where you're sitting, if you're looking at the supply that's coming on, is that going to be moving up and and breaking down that deficit? Or, as you mentioned there, with the reactors coming in in China, for example, are we going to see the demand side of things really run away with itself and possibly see this deficit increase? Um, yeah, and it, it's been coming from two sources. One was inventory drawdown, which is about thirty million pounds, and the other one was secondary material, where um, you can reprocess some uranium. Uh, the Russians are very good at doing this, and bring material from there. So, the inventory uh, drawdown is is pretty well come to the end. Uh, most people have consumed that. We still will see some secondary material. Um, being recycled through, and, and that will always be the case. But it's going to get a lot lower than the £30 million that was there as inventories of that have gone down. So we are needing new supply. Uh, there are a number of projects around the world that are either in standstill mode um, or are ready, like we are, to come in and add to the development going forward. As this, the other problem that we have is that as an industry, we've had an, no real new builds for quite a long time. And so we are looking at some fairly substantial projects who are coming close to the end of their lives and will have to be replaced. So, you know, the, the best thing that we ever need in this is obviously as you continue to have low prices at some point, prices have to return to an industry level that can support. And we're starting to see that happening now. Um, we got to an all-time low at about $18 a pound back in 2016. We're up at about $51 a pound now. We're starting to see a couple of new projects, restarts, being incentivized to come back. They're relatively small, but we are going to need to see a lot higher uranium price out there. And that, from an investor point of view, is, is the key driver. I mean, you're always looking for something as a momentum push for your sector, your higher uranium prices are it. To put it in context, if you went back through the last bull cycle, the spot uranium price went to $140 a pound. So, you know, almost three times higher than where it is now. Uh, contract prices were being settled out at the $70 to $80 price. So, you know, some 40 to 50% higher than where we are now. Um, so there's a lot of upside still in the uranium market. And that higher price is what's going to incentivize the uranium supply side to start filling up the gap. Fantastic. So let's now speak about GovX, Daniel. We mentioned we're going to be discussing the projects, which we'll do a little bit later on. But we want to take a, a, a top-down approach to GovX to, to start with, and then we can look at the specifics of your projects. So f- from your point of view, Daniel, what are the key elements that sets GovX apart from some of the other players out there in the uranium space at the moment? I think there's a... 
two or three things. The first one, I think, is our scale. I mean, we're sitting with well over 200 million pounds of uranium in the ground in resources um, over our two main projects. Um, we have a lot of exploration upside on top of that. So we've got you know, a big resource. We're in Africa. Um, I see that as a positive because you are talking about jurisdictions, governments, whose economies, GDP, are driven by commodities. And therefore, you have governments who are keen to see mining operations be developed within their countries to incentivize growth, infrastructure, people, etc. Um, and then on top of that, and because of that, we ha have two projects that are already mine permitted. And let me just put that in context as well. If we look at Niger, for example, where we got our mine permits done back in 2015, it took us four months uh, after application to get our mine permit issued. And it's not that the government, you know, is, is doesn't take these things seriously. You know, we issued up a full 43-101 compliant feasibility study. Um, and in fact, the final feasibility study we've just put out is like 880 pages long uh, on our website. So it's a very detailed piece of work. We've put out a fully com IFC compliant ESIA, which was approved to get our environmental impact assessment. So, you know, there's not, it isn't an issue of, you know, just quick and easy. From that perspective, you have to still fulfill all the requirements um, to get the permit. And that's key. Whereas if you look at places like North America, you know, where people are looking at new projects, that process can take, you know, 10, 15 years um, of permitting. Um, so th those are the real positives. And, and, you know, we're already in front of the game. We're already targeting the financing one of our projects and we'll have finished the feasibility study on the second one uh, within a year. Great, great, great stuff. So let's continue to speak about uh, Niger, if we may... Daniel, and the Madawala project, because from my understanding, this is one that you obviously discussed there has a feasibility project, uh, sorry, feasibility study completed, and you're looking at the financing for the project now. So it would be quite interesting to hear about maybe a little bit about the geology, uh, what's actually in the ground and, and where you are with the financing side of things. Yeah, I mean, Madawala is a really interesting project. I mean, its key strengths is the large resources there, but more importantly, it's got everything it needs from a project perspective. It has infrastructure. Um, we are directly next to the two mines that Arano, Arriva or Kojima, whichever, the state parastatal started mining back in the early 70s. So there's power, um, there's a road that goes all the way to the port of Cotonou in Benin, which is where Arano have been shipping uranium since 1971. And in fact, Niger uh, last year accounted for 25% of all of the imported uranium for Europe. So it's a big hub for material coming into Europe. Um, there's people. Um, one of the mines closed last uh, year before last. Um, and so there's trained personnel. Um, there are mining universities in Niger as well. Uh, it's a country that therefore understands uranium mining. And surprisingly, being in the middle of the Sahara Desert, there's a lot of water. Um, we have massive um, underground aquifers. Um, 
one thing I'll point, and I know at some point we'll probably come to ESG, but you know, despite the volume of water, we spend a lot of time in our designs trying to mitigate the amount of water uh, that we would use uh, on the project. So it's a sandstone, standard sandstone hosted deposit. Um, it is starts as an open pit mine um, and then goes into two separate underground mines, um, which are very shallow and easy to access using all the same methodologies that uh, the Tuarano mines have been using for the last 50 years. Lovely. So let's move on now. We're going to be discussing some of the projects now in, in more detail um, to Montanga in Zambia. Maybe could you speak a little bit uh, about that, please, Daniel, and maybe make some comparisons about where you are uh, with Montanga compared to Madawala. And again, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit more about the geology. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Montanga is a is a, is a very interesting, uh, you know, and very positive project. Um, Madawala has got well over twenty years of mine life, producing about two and a half million pounds a, a year planned. Uh, Montanga is currently eleven years, producing two and a half million pounds. Geology is slightly different, still sandstone hosted, but we're looking at more oxidized ores rather than the primary ores that we've got there. It's all open pit. It tends to be very shallow. It is grade is lower than Madawella's, uh, but one of its key benefits, uh, one of the biggest consumables in our industry is sulfuric acid, which we use to leach the uranium out of the rocks. Um if you look at the mines generally in Niger, they consume one well over 100 kilograms of sulfuric acid for every ton of rock you put into the process plant. In Madawela, we managed to bring that number down to $50, uh, 50 kilos a ton, uh, just on the way we looked at the, the metallurgy and the way we did the process design. Montanga is less than 10. And this is in a country that produces sulfuric acid naturally through the copper smelting business that's there it's got great infrastructure it's right next to a main road it's three kilometers three hours drive from lusaka um again country that's known for mining um and the skill sets are there and and that's one of the reasons why in our projects we rely a hundred percent on local employment strategy um and, and commit to that all the way along that one at the moment um so Madawell has finished full bankable. Uh, Montanga at the moment, we're taking to its full bankable at the moment. So that's under in process at the moment. We're doing just verifying the metallurgical test work, et cetera. So by end of Q1, going into Q2 next year, we will have finished the bankable for Montanga. Lovely. So let's now speak, if we may, Daniel, about the operational side of things, because you mentioned there that 25% of the imported uh, uranium from Nigeria goes to Europe. And so that sounds like there's significant infrastructure in place. Is that infrastructure shared in, in Zambia? Um, no, we have a different structure there. And so far as you've got to remember in Madawela, we're at the end of the road, effectively. Um, so uh, and a long way from anywhere. So having that infrastructure there in the case of Muntanga, we're on the southern part of the country away from the Copper Belt, but we're right next to um, the Kariba Dam. 
for example. There's a big multi-power line that crosses our right next to our property as well. Um, we've got a tarmac road, which is the tarmac road that goes into Zimbabwe. So great infrastructure right there. It's just a standard government infrastructure. Um, importantly as well, uh, in the past, there was a mine developed in Malawi. Um that had to find a route to export its uranium. That export route was actually out of Namibia and Wolfis Bay. So on the West Coast, rather than going the short route to the East Coast. And that was a decision by the IAEA, who felt that was the better way, because that's where uranium was being exported from anyway, um, out of Namibia. And so we benefit from that insofar as Zambia is already fully permitted for import uh, export of uranium. Um, so we leave. We can leverage off that. This is a government that, again, is very supportive. It wants the uranium mine to be built. And, and interesting, Niger and Zambia are two of 14 to 15 different countries in Africa who actually are looking to go to nuclear energy using SMRs. Great. So, of course, Daniel, operating with uranium, there's a high level of safety requirements needed. I mean, how do you find that process? Because, of course, you've mentioned the infrastructure uh, that is set up for uranium, but maybe some of it you're using isn't. How are you dealing with that process of managing the operational side of things? Yeah, and we've been doing a lot of work at the moment. Obviously, we're not an operator at the moment, but we obviously have to prepare ourselves and our designs and everything else. And I think, firstly let's allay some fear here um you know just because there is uranium there does not you know instantly make it dangerous uh, i mean anyone who goes to cornwall every year for their summer holidays will not realize but those granite rocks there are highly radioactive um <laughs> and in fact when i was at university down there in, in camborne they weren't having to knock houses down because of the amount of radon was inside the houses from the local granite um, from the radiation release that was coming from there. And, and, you know, no one has any fear going down to Cornwall. Um, but yes, there are set, there's rules. We have rules on how much emissions and how much dose can anybody can receive at any one time. It's exceedingly low. Um, it's lower than what you would get if you were going on an international flight to the US. Um, so, you know, we have those controls uh, in place. Um we have controls on how we ship. But again, you know, the way what we produce is a, a yellow powder uh, called yellow cake. And the way it's transported is we put it into steel drums. Those steel drums are, tr are strapped inside a, a standard shipping container. And that's how it's transported. And why? Because the radiation coming from the yellow cake actually can't get through the steel of the steel drum. Um, so it, it's incredibly safe from that point of view. We control the way we ship there's a whole bunch of regulations on where we can ship to how we can ship the shipping companies that can handle it and, and and deal with it all the way through the process we obviously have a lot of work done in all of our projects on environmental controls to ensure that you know we're protecting it and the most difficult part is is actually when we finally get the yellow cake itself and ensuring that that area is safe and that we have proper processes in place going forward on whether there's a spillage or not uh, and how to deal with that. Um, and, and firstly, ensure it doesn't happen in the first place. Thank you. So in the case of Madawala, Daniel, you're very 
near the end of the entire process, which has obviously taken some years. You're lining up financing, and that will eventually take you to a situation where you're going to be producing, and you're going to need off-takers for that production. So would you be able to talk to, you know, that situation? Are you speaking to anybody at the moment? Um, How's that whole process going? Yeah, so let's kind of... uh... I, I didn't get to that in your previous question, so I'll do with it now. The financing. So we, we actually engaged a, a UK group, uh, Endeavour Financial, who specialise in, in debt financing for mining projects, and particularly in Africa, um, to do support us on our debt financing. And so we have reached out to a whole plethora of different uh, potential candidates. I mean, this is an unconventional commodity. Um, there isn't, it hasn't been any uranium mines financed since sort of 2006, 2007 in the public market and unconventional jurisdiction. Um, but we put a press release out at the end of last year to highlight that we have 20 different lending groups um, potentially interested. They're currently in the data room at the moment, reviewing documents and deciding if they want to go to the next stage. They include commercial banks, they include export credit agencies, they include uh, DFIs as well. So, you know, government funded backers. Alongside of that, and and that process will continue, we've already appointed the independent engineers who have to come in and review our project and make sure it stands up to scrutiny. They will also come in and review our environmental plans to make sure they stand up to scrutiny. So it's a very detailed process we have to now go through before we finalize terms with the lenders. Now, part of that discussion in order to alleviate the lender's risk is obviously the offtake side. Uh, they want to know the security of pricing, uh, that the security of revenue subject to meeting the technical skills out there. So um, just over a year ago, uh, I appointed a gentleman to our company who's got well over 30 years of experience of selling uranium uh, used to sell it for BHP from their big Olympic Dam project in Australia, for Cameco, the big Canadian, and actually um, for Uranium One, the Russians as well. So he knows pretty well all of the off-takers. And when I'm talking off-takers here, we're pretty well talking the utilities themselves. So the guys who are actually running nuclear reactors. So in here in the in UK, we will be talking to, or I know we already are, we're talking to people like EDF. Uh, they have to obviously source their uranium to run their nuclear reactors. Uh, we're talking to a number of others here across Europe. So um, there is people like CEZ, Vattenfall, TVO, uh, the last two being in, in Scandinavia. Um, you've got a Noosa down in Spain. Um, you've got the US re- um, utilities as well. And there's about a dozen of those. So we're talking to all of them. Um, we've kept in communication with them and gradually brought them along the the trail with ourselves so they have understand and get to understand who we are. Because obviously they're making a commitment if they want to start buying from us because we haven't got a mine. Um, and so they have to understand that we've got the skills to achieve this and they can then take that risk of putting that commitment forward. So we're in that process. It will run parallel to the debt um, because they're obviously totally interrelated. Um, and so we will start to sign up, hopefully, uh, contracts at the pricing that we need uh, su- to support the debt financing. 
Yeah, it seems as though there's a hell of a lot going on there. And it's obviously interesting to hear the type of people that you're speaking to there, Daniel. And obviously there seems to be some interest. So we just want to talk now to the ESG side of things. Now, of course, on a very top level, uranium feeds nuclear reactors, which is there to reduce carbon in our power supply. But I think it would be good to hear a little bit more about how you're working on the ground in your jurisdictions, working with the the local community, looking at the environment there. You were talking about the water consumption at one of the projects. So it'd be good to, to hear uh, a little bit more about how that's going forward. Yeah, and, I, I, and people shouldn't sort of think ESG is something new. I mean, ESG has been around for a long, long time in our industry. I just kind of has now reached prominence more than anything else. And I think the other thing, quite often when I go to conferences, people talk about ESG and then all they seem to ever talk about is solar panels. Um, and, and that's not what ESG is about. Yeah. ESG is about putting in place all of your processes that you need to run a successful business and a safe business, both for your people and your environment and your stakeholders. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about you know accident safety, but governance is included in that as well. So there's different aspects of this. So whenever we do go into the project design stage, and we did this with Madawela, and I'm now doing it with Matanga, we actually start with an ESG review. We sit down and we go, okay, what are the factors, environmental factors, social factors that we've got to consider on this project? And how do we design those into it to help mitigate any risks that we're bringing to the projects? There's a risk review here as well. So in the case of Madawela, for example, we designed it to reduce water consumption as much as we could. Even though there's plenty of water, we just said, no, we want to limit it. We wanted to mitigate dust. So we redesigned our tailings down, which is where all the waste get put at the end, obviously. But in our case, and it's in the desert, so of course it stays dry and it's windy. So we said, no, we will design it so it's capped as we go along. So as we continue to build it out, we will continue to cover it to reduce the amount of dust that's coming off there. We reduce the amount of power. Obviously, that has a double effect. It saves money, but also it reduces the amount of energy we have to produce. And then we included renewables into that as well. We've done a lot of work as a company, put updating, modifying our health and safety systems internally, but building them in a way that they are now hopefully self-sustaining. So as we grow as a company, there is a regular review process. So we continually checking them to make sure they're still fit for purpose. And if they're not, modifying them as we grow to better suit the, the system where we are. And then lastly on that is the stakeholder engagement process, which is absolutely key. Um, you know, and, and I think that's become clearer as we've gone on in time in the industry is that you have to engage continually with your stakeholders, whether that's the government, whether that's investors, your local communities. And in Africa, particularly, you know, there is a real focus on local, uh, local procurement, local employment and putting together strategies to seek to ensure that you are employing as local as you can. So to, since 2009, we've maintained a local employment strategy. But it goes beyond that. You have to go and look at local, local. So just because you're in Zambia, you know, people where we are in southern province don't want suddenly everybody to come out of the northern province to come and work on their mind. They want the jobs as well. 
So you've got to look at the skill sets and say, right, you know, what are those skill sets? How can we help develop them so we can maximize the people around the mine to get the most benefit? They're the ones most impacted by the mine. Therefore, they should be the ones who are most benefited by the mine as well. So we every two weeks, we actually have committee meetings on all of our assets and sit down and review continually what our stakeholder engagement is telling us trying to understand where where we have trends, what are we having to deal with, where there are risks um, to go forward. So very much have to make the community part of what you're doing, communicate to them, but also look at all the other aspects uh, that are out there that need to be developed for a project. So ESG is key, but as I say, it's it's been around for a while, but it's part of good management practice. Of course, of course. I mean, certainly... Now it is seen as a big indicator of value going forward, um, not yeah. not just a nice to have. Yeah, just, uh, just, I'm, then, sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you there. Sorry, apologise. Um, and and on, with regard that, um, we actually put out our first ESG report last year um, using the Onion systems, accessible, public. You can get onto it. Um, what is really good about that system is it it cuts all the fluff out. It's it's all about getting the clear data out there to show investors, funds, etc., what GoVX is actually doing from an ESG perspective. So you know we have now put it out there publicly. We have to keep committing to it. Uh, that's a major step as well. I mean that that's very interesting. That you bring that point up, Daniel, because I mean we could we could have a whole podcast of talking about ESG and mining, but it is that standardisation and making things easy and and making it relevant for the people that are reading it, uh, which is important. Um, and it's, I think there's still some way uh, to go and encourage, encourage people listening to this that would like to read that, go and check out GovX's website um, and and do have a, a look at that. So, of course, Daniel, you're going to be presenting with us in a couple of weeks' time. So anybody listening, do also check out the notes to this podcast because there's a link in there which will take you through to the event page where you can sign up to hear a little bit more. Daniel will be speaking about the projects in more detail. But just to finish up, Daniel, people listening to this um, and like the sound of your story and thinking what's next for for GovX in terms of your key events, what would you point them to over the next 12 to 24 months? Um, obviously, on Matawela, it'll be announcements on how we're doing with the debt um, as we move through those next stages and then the offtake. Um Hopefully, and our target is to get that all sorted out this year um, so that we can actually start construction on that mine next year, which would see us producing uranium late 2025, early 2026. So that's kind of our timeline that we're targeting, subject to getting that financing um, going. On Montanga, um, be a resource update coming out in the next uh, couple of months. Um, as we did a lot of drilling, just infilling on one of the projects, and then we'll give step changes through the year as we move through that final feasibility study um, on there as well with the feasibility study due out, as I said, you know, first, second quarter of 2024. So, you know, these are all big steps for mining companies as we, we seek to get into production. And I think the one point I would make for investors as well is that if we look back at the previous cycles, the real value turnarounds have been in either the companies that go from being a developer to being a producer 
Um, and in fact, there's one absolute classic one, a company called Paladin that went from seven cents to seven dollars when it went from being a developer to being a producer. And then the other thing you see is energy protection. Uh, and in 2011, the big value drivers for investors were the takeouts. Uh, and most of those takeouts were in Africa, uh, where governments can and companies can own 100% of their projects. Uh, and that is also, you know, a big aspect as well. Thank you very much, Daniel. That's been fascinating. And uh, just also re- reiterate, you know, do check out the notes because it's great, obviously, listening to the podcast, but there'll be some illustrations in the presentation that Daniel gives in a, in a couple of weeks' uh, time. So, Daniel, thank you for speaking on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been most enjoyable. Yes, very, very much enjoyed having you on. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.